Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. On today's episode, I welcome in David Perel, who is the founder and CEO of Rite of Passage. David is a writer, teacher, and podcaster. He believes writing online is one of the biggest opportunities in the world today. For the first time in human history, everybody can freely share their ideas with a global audience. David seeks to help as many people publish their writing online as possible. You can find David online on his website. It's his last name, Perel.com. That's P-E-R-E-L-L.com. On Twitter, at David underscore Perel. Or his podcast, How I Write. I hope you all enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with David. And without further ado, please welcome in David Perel. David, welcome to the podcast. Good to have you, man. Thanks, Brian. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. I've been following your journey for a little while and uh, really excited to dive into some stuff here. So thanks for uh, coming on. Uh, there's a lot of interesting spots I think we'll go today. The one I wanted to start with, though, because I think it, you know, I think about the folks listening in, a lot of you know, busy professionals trying to start, whether it's businesses online or just new hobbies or whatever. And obviously, writing's a big piece, but I think some of the lessons maybe that can be learned can be a variety of stuff. So I wanted to start because I was never a great student growing up, especially with English and writing. And it was funny, I was listening to, uh, I know you had Mark Manson on your podcast, and you guys both kind of simultaneously were like, we both stunk at writing growing up. I think you actually failed uh, spelling because, if I recall, right? Yeah, exactly, in second grade. So the reason I wanted to bring that up, I think is a good place to start, because how how do you go from that to not only having this business surrounding writing, but coaching on writing, obviously talking a lot about it. You have practice, if I recall, about 90 minutes a day where you're writing all the time. So how do you go from like poor student, didn't like writing to what you're doing today? I think we can learn a lot from that uh, that journey. Yeah, honestly, the answer is embedded in your question that the example that you used was that I couldn't spell the word because and that that would be the thing that would make me a bad writer, right? That's the thing that I wasn't allowed to go to recess for. And then a lot of the writing that we do in school is around understanding literature and trying to rewrite creative fiction or creative nonfiction stories. And it's the kind of writing that gets you into an MFA program or something like that. But that's not the kind of writing I do at all. The kind of writing that I do is what is an idea that you're really excited about? What is something that you want to learn? And how can you learn that for yourself, structure it, investigate it, and then present it in a way where it's clear, it's compelling, it's engaging, it's concise. And that isn't the kind of way that teachers talk about writing in school. Mm -hmm. And that's why I was a really bad writer. That's why writing didn't captivate me. And that's why when I did find this new way of thinking about it, I was awestruck by all the possibility and potential. Do you think a lot of folks, again, I'm probably me included, I think you get stuck where you don't think, oh, I wasn't good at English. I'm not a good writer. Ah, that's for someone else. I, I can't do that. Do you find that a lot with the folks you're talking with? That's what they can't even get off the starting line. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. I, it's very common. People block themselves from writing before they even begin 
And what's really interesting is if you read people's text messages, often they're really well written and funny and smart yeah. and insightful and incisive. But then all of a sudden they get a Google Doc in front of them and their hands just tense up and their brain stops functioning. And it's the same thing. It's I had many years ago, I had a student who sent me a beautifully worded email about why she was worried about enrolling in Rite of Passage. Yeah. And I was really impressed with the quality of the email. And then week two, three, four of the course, she was like, I, I'm not a good writer. I'm not a good writer. Like, I can't structure my emails. Like, ah, my word choice is bad. I'm like, you literally sent us a great email a few weeks ago. Of course you can publish a good article. And so I think a lot of where people get stuck comes back to a context dependency mm. where in one context they can write really well, they can just let it rip. But in another one, they freeze up and they can't think. It's very common. Is that because when there's an audience, because I, I could imagine if you gave someone a, a diary or journal said, hey, just write some thoughts on, they might be okay. But it's when it potentially could get read by someone other than themselves. That's when they're freezing up. Yeah, it's not somebody other than themselves. It is a group of people. That's when people tense up. Mm -hmm. So if people are writing for one person or a small group, it's totally fine, especially if they know those people. But if people begin to write for the masses and they begin to think, what are 100,000 people going to say about what I've written? That's when your brain can't process that. It's not designed to do that. Warren Buffett writes his annual letter and he addresses the early drafts to his sister, Dorothy, and he just writes them to her. And then at the end, he's getting ready to publish and he erases her name and then puts in dear shareholders. And that's the right way to think about it, right? For one person, find somebody who is like your ideal reader or somebody who you just feel really comfortable with. And then only later on, start thinking about the masses of people that you're going to reach. Mm. But when you're doing thinking from the masses at the very beginning, and what are all these people going to think about what it is that I'm saying, you're restricting yourself before you've even begun. Yeah. Yeah. I liked how uh, Morgan Housel, I think he mentions he writes selfishly like for yeah. himself. And then ultimately yeah, it turns out that he feels, Hey, if I'm dealing with it, maybe others have a similar thought, you know? So I kind of like yeah. that approach to it. So, Okay, someone's listening to this or like, all right, I'll give it a shot. I'll, I'll try to write. What's like the first, what's the baby steps here to get them started? Yeah, don't go right. Find people who you can have good conversations with mm. and get in a place where you are realizing that the things that you're saying in conversation are insightful and you're getting the validation from people nodding their head, from people laughing, from people saying, hey, that's a that's an interesting or compelling idea. And I call this writing from conversation rather than jumping to the page, which is what people have done their entire lives. Just go talk to people. Mm. Just go talk to people and sit down and work through those conversations. And one of the other things that really helps is you can open up your phone and you can use uh, AI transcription tool, like the new GPT-4 whisper technology is so good. And you can just talk into your phone and then you can get all the words onto the page and the transcript. And yeah, it'll be a little messy, but then rather than starting with nothing, you can start with something. Like I just got back from Florence and I was very struck by 
So I was in Florence and then about an hour and a half west, there are the white marble mines. And very like you can see it in the infrastructure that just getting the marble for something like the Statue of David was a whole process in itself. And when Michelangelo, when he would make his statues, he would say that he would see the statue in the marble. He didn't need a perfect block of marble. He just could look at it. He would then chisel all the, chisel away all the things that weren't going to be part of that final statue. And what I like about speaking out your ideas is you get the marble, right? Mm -hmm. A great sculptor, they're not actually going to get the marble. They're taking an existing marble and they're sculpting it. You can do the same thing in your writing. And it's a lot easier for us to do that by talking than it is for, for us to do it just by sitting down at the keyboard. And so a lot of, I'm not saying that this works for every single person ever, but a lot of the way that I think about writing is what I needed, which is the traditional way that we learned to write didn't work for me. And there's millions of other people in the world who are like that. So what is a different way from how we learn in school that is aligned with our social lives, with the modern world? And then how do we write in that way? And that's a lot of my approach to writing, to liberate people who didn't learn to write well in school. Is the encouragement then to like just go to friends and family or is it to reach out to maybe people that are like coworkers or peers that aren't so close to them and, and have conversation? Maybe it's all the above. I don't. Yeah. 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 All the above. I mean, today, you know, I haven't really seen anyone. So I just texted a friend. I was like, Hey, let's get dinner tonight. I have a few things that I want to talk through a few pieces that I'm thinking of writing. So for example, I have this riff that CEOs are sloganeers and I've been laughing about this for a long time because I have a few friends who run big companies and they're constantly telling the same stories over and over and over. And I'll be sitting down at dinner with most people and I get all these different riffs, but with them, they're just saying the same stuff. And so someone will ask a question, I'll introduce them to people and 70% of the conversation, I could just answer for them because yeah. they've told those stories over and over. And I'm like, what's going on there? Why are they always doing this? And what they're doing is they're, going through the same stories repeatedly to try to figure out what is the punchline? What is the way that I can tell the story, the pacing, the words, that's going to really make this land and resonate? Because what you realize with a story is that small tweaks to what you say, one word here, one pause there, one speed up there, can have a really big impact in terms of how much that story resonates. This is what comedians are doing all the time. There's a great nerd writer video about the comedic process for Louis C.K. where he just breaks down exactly how Louis C.K. tells a joke. And CEOs are doing the same thing. You know, how many times has Jeff Bezos said, focus on the customer, focus on the customer, focus on the customer. However many times it is, I bet if he was sitting here right now, writing from conversation with us, he would say, I haven't told that story enough. But that's what he's doing. Even when he was working at Amazon headquarters in Seattle, he worked in a building called Day One. And when they moved the building, he took the name Day One with them. What is that? That's a slogan. Day One is the relentless pursuit of innovation, always feeling like you're a novice at the very beginning. And even though they're a trillion dollar company or something, they still want to keep that day one mentality. They still want to focus on the customer. And that's what a great CEO is always doing. 
And they're too just always writing from conversation. And so back to dinner, I want to write that out. I just spoke about it here. I want to speak about it again. And then, you know, in the next few days, I want to publish a piece on that. But by the time I sit down to write, I will have said that two to four times with different audiences, paid attention to what are the follow-up questions that they have? What are the parts that they're engaged with? And then I'll turn that into a piece rather than sitting down to write that from the very, from the very beginning. Well, and I like what you said is you're kind of gauging their reaction because if you're just writing right. in, a, in a vacuum, you can't, I mean, you know what you know, but being able to see some reaction like, ah, that was interesting. Or someone followed up with a question here and that took me down this rabbit hole I never would have considered. So I do like that approach of kind of talking it out and then, you know, kind of scripting it after that. Yeah, it's what comedians do, right? Like when you see Chris Rock and he is doing his Netflix special at the Madison Square Garden or whatever, that's not the first time that he's telling those jokes. He starts off in small comedy clubs all around the country. I have a friend in town. His name is Reza Jaffrey. He's one of my students. He's up and coming comedian. And I went to one of his shows and it was really good. And I said, you know, how many times have you told the average joke and he sort of sits back we got these pork sandwiches in our hands or whatever and he sits back and he goes guess i'm like i don't know he goes about a thousand about a thousand times he had told the average joke that he shared that night and it just struck me that what you see as something that feels so natural it's actually just the opposite of that. It's something that is really rehearsed and really refined. And time and time again, they've told that story and they're constantly, it's the same thing in a small comedy room. You're gauging the reactions of people. Where are they laughing? Where are they bored? Why are you flopping? When you flop, what's going on? And only later, the reason why Chris Rock or a really good Netflix special is funny every 60 to 90 seconds is because they'd have all those cycles, cycles, cycles of putting stuff out there, seeing what lands, seeing what doesn't, and refining and tweaking, refining and tweaking. And that's the stuff of comedy. That's the stuff of writing. That's the stuff of communication. Yeah, I, I yeah, that, that from a comedian standpoint, you kind of take it, I guess you can, in terms of like a, even a content creator, it's even going back, right? Would you, would you agree? It's that ideation phase of like, even like the littlest observation, I, I guess I hear this from a lot of comedians, like they're always observing the world in a very unique totally. way. And then just writing totally. a couple snippets down. Right. And then yeah. try taking those to, to, you know, the storytelling, I guess, and going from there. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you take a drink versus take a swig versus chug, those are technically synonyms, but they have very different meanings. You take a drink of water, mm -hmm. you chug beer, and you take a swig of whiskey. If you're taking a drink of water, you probably just want to take a drink, a little break or something. Maybe you're thirsty. If you're chugging beer now, you have all these party connotations. If you're taking a swig of whiskey, now you have someone who might have had a tough day, who might really be dealing with something. And just by a little word here or there, also swig and chug are way funnier than drink or sip. So there's just little words that you can change that have a very profound impact on how whatever it is that you're trying to communicate is going to land. So how does someone, I guess that's, again, not a good writer, and maybe that's a bad way to say it, I guess, but like, you know, they don't write a lot and they haven't put their yeah. thoughts down and they, and again, they want to start writing. They're starting to tell stories. 
how do they understand those new ones? Because just as you said that, I was like, oh yeah, it makes a hell of a lot of sense changing those little words. But how do you think about it? Because I write a lot online. I don't, I guess, think about that as much in terms of changing those little words here and there. So how does someone learn that? Yeah, I mean, look, that's 401 stuff. Like that is okay. not okay. 401 where you should start and begin. That is actually what I just shared. If you're focused on that, that is exactly the problem with fifth grade English class. Okay. Like Miss Peterson or whatever that's the stuff that she had you focused on. And she thought that that was what good writing was. That's not what good writing is at all. What good writing really is fundamentally is having an idea worth sharing or a story worth telling and being able to communicate that from your mind into somebody else's mind in a way that's emotionally resonant. That's all it is. That's all it is. So then the question is, how do you identify good ideas that you have how do you identify stories worth telling? And then once you have them, how do you then improve and refine those things? That's the place to be focused. And everything else, like swig and chug, I mean, those are like the final little like soft taps with your paintbrush mm -hmm. that you've shared after the rest of the painting is dry. Mm -hmm. And really it's about how do you take the things that you're observing and noticing and how do you share those in a way that are coherent, cohesive. So one of the little frameworks that I use is if you're communicating something, it helps to pull from three different dimensions. And I call this pop writing. There's personal, there's observational, and there's playful. So personal is telling stories about yourself. Like yesterday morning, I was at church and we're reading Acts chapter two. And it was a very heady sermon. And all of a sudden he started talking, the pastor started talking about his experience at Clemson University in college. And I just sort of sat back and all of a sudden established a connection with the pastor that I didn't have as I was sitting there and listening. That's personal. And that creates an intimacy. The second thing is observational. And this is what are your, your unique insights that you have? What are the observations that you're having about the world that you can share? And then the third one is playfulness. This is actually allowing your personality to show up on the page. And all these people, and I'll say this in a very playful way to sort of prove my point, all these people say, no, 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 no. Like, actually, that doesn't work for me. Like, I work in business. There's no way it can right. be playful. I work in academia and science. There's no way it can be playful. You're, you're, you're a fraudulent teacher. And I'm like, hold on. Actually, the more serious your industry, the more serious the place that you are, the more of an opportunity there is to bring in playfulness. Now, there's a spectrum of how playful you want to be. You don't want to be writing some memo to your company and be as playful as somebody who is writing about the night of, you know, the previous episode of, of, of Gossip Girl or something like that. Like, that's not what I'm saying. But look at Packy McCormick. Look at Bill Simmons in the world of sports. There are so many writers who took something that was serious and stultified and they saw that whatever writing was going on there didn't have a lot of life and they injected it with humor, with flavor, with color, character, personality. And that's why people love their work. So I always come back to, is there a personal component in what you're saying? Stories about yourself. 
Is there an observational component, insights that you're having about the world? Is there a playful component where you're bringing in your personality onto the page and injecting your piece with life? And if you can just focus on personal, observational, and playful, and just try to enhance all of those a little bit, your writing, your communication is just going to get better. And and just to make sure I heard you correctly earlier, for, for everyone listening in, just a yellow highlighter this, don't stumble out of the, the starting gate because you're trying to nitpick every word. That's not important day one. Just actually start writing. And the that's little, like, yeah. That's <laughs> like, because I know people chef. are going to get stuck and be like, yeah, well, totally. I got to change that word, Brian. Nitpicking is yeah. like a chef saying that they can't cook yeah. because the way that they're like sprinkling the sauce as they're plating the dish right. doesn't look as good as what you get at Nobu. It's like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? That is the very last thing that you do. And sure, it's something that people see, but everybody knows that cooking has to, has to do with so much more than how you plate the food. And somebody saying, oh, I'm caught up on a little word choice here and there. It's just ridiculous when you put it in that context. Yeah. Yeah. Good now is better than perfect later. It's like, get it, just get it out. You can always refine and edit. But yeah. Also, just... eloquence is so often overrated. I am yeah. shocked by how many of the most quote unquote elegant things I've written have been made in a posture of just trying to be simple and clear. And whatever's come out has been eloquent, and I didn't even realize it in the moment. Mm. Tell me more about that. Just happens all the time. It happens all the time where the things that people repeat back to me, like here's one, the world doesn't reward people who are the best. Hold on, let me start that over. The world doesn't reward people with the best ideas. It rewards the people who are best at communicating those ideas. Mm. And I just shared that. I just wrote that. And I was like, typed it out. And it seemed obvious to me that the people who are the most successful just aren't the ones with the best ideas. They're the really good communicators. Hmm. And you don't need all your own ideas. If you can take existing ideas and just communicate them way better, you have a whole career ahead of you. I've seen it time and again throughout history. Look at Bill Bryson. Bill Bryson, his entire career is just taking existing ideas and adding so much life to them. He wrote a book about 1927 called One Summer. He just published an anatomy book called The Body. Like these are basic standard things that when you read bill bryson write about the body it is so much better than your average college professor even though that college professor might actually have more knowledge the world rewards people who are really good at communicating ideas and so i wrote that i was like well that's just obviously true and people repeat that line to me all the time. Here's another one, the paradox of creativity. Your work is done when the reader thinks that all the ideas are obvious, which means that they'll never appreciate how hard you worked in order to get there. And this happens in, any, in every creative endeavor. Like your work is done when the thing just is like, well, of course it should be that way. It's like yeah. intuitive that that was the right form for whatever was delivered there. But like, you know, as a creative in anything that you do, you have to go through this entire maze of, 
Am I going to go this way? Am I going to go that way? Am I going to go that way? Dun, 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 dun. Just ad infinitum. And you're constantly trying to figure out what is the best thing for me to do. And then eventually you stumble upon something that is really simple and clear and compelling. And the person sees it. They're like, oh, of course. Even structure should just fade and recede into the background. But as the creative, you know all the different things you needed to do in order to get there. And that's just, these are things that just feel very obvious to me because I'm doing the work, I'm sort of reflecting. And a lot of the work that falls flat is when I'm trying to sound smart, yeah. I'm trying to sound elegant, I'm trying to write beautiful, purply prose. And people are just like, no, 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 no. Readers are smart. Like, if you're posturing, if you're sort of LARPing as the next Hemingway or something, they're like, I don't like this. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. That's a, I, that's a good point, though, about like making it so obvious that, yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, I thought it like I could have thought of this or whatever. But it's like, ah, like an aha moment. Like, oh, why didn't I think of that? You know, that's kind of the reaction I get, I guess, when I read good solid writing, you know? Yeah. 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 Like think of the book Atomic Habits, it's like the best title ever. Yeah. Okay. What does atomic mean? Atomic, like an atom bomb. It's really strong. Atomic is really small. And atoms are the building blocks of the physical world. So atomic habits is like a triple entendre. That is an amazing structure. That is an amazing title. And he starts by walking you through that. Now that you hear that, you're like, oh, well, obviously atomic habits, right? No, there's so much thought that goes into that. He probably thought through, James Clear probably thought through a hundred titles and there's so much compression and distillation and like chiseling the edges of what doesn't fit in order for you to just get to two elegant words that no one even thinks of because they're just like, it should obviously be like that. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, we'll, we maybe come back to this. I'm sure we'll, we'll somehow transition, but I wanted to read something you had wrote and this kind of comes to, a, I got a lot of folks that struggle to start because they're, you know, their identity is, you know, they haven't even thought about like, could my identity shift? Cause I'm stuck in whatever. And it's around surrendering to your nature. This may sound familiar because you wrote this. I suspect less than 10% of people ever surrender to who they really are. They spend their whole lives trying to fulfill a fake and manuf manicure manufactured image. And so they get trapped in hollow careers and meaningless pursuits where they're forced to be somebody they're not the stuff of a cold and haunting misery. I love that ending. Could you share your thoughts on this and why you wrote that? Yeah. Those last lines make me shake. And that's why I wrote it. The stuff of a cold and haunting misery. Like that makes me shake. And I just met so many people like that. So when I was living in New York, I must've been, this was early in my career. It's probably 22 or 23. And there was a, restaurant that I used to go to on Park Avenue for lunch. And I remember walking out of lunch one day, and I saw this guy who was walking out of the Colgate Palmolive building. And he was very overweight. He was leaning over like the leaning tower of Pisa and his face was bright red. It was almost like covered in rashes. And he just looked so unhealthy. It was probably in his mid 50s. And I don't know why, but I just looked at that guy and I made up an entire story about who he is. I was like, he lives in New Jersey. He's divorced. He's got four kids. He has a bad relationship with those kids. He makes $550,000 a year. 
he drives some really fancy cars, is a member at the nice country club, but he's really unhappy. And his commute just kills him. He's been doing this for 27 years and he hates his job. He doesn't like his life, even though that in every metric of conventional career success, he's crushing it. He's a C-level executive. And I just made all this up. And I was like, that's going to be my anti-story. That's going to be the person who I'm not going to let myself become. And that has to do with family. It has to do with commutes. It has to do with health. It has to do with work. And it has to do with being uncompromising in terms of who you are, what you want to do, and what you're good at. And I think a lot of people get really stuck because they don't actually allow themselves to accept the things that they're naturally made for and gifted to be doing. They're always fighting what their nature is pushing them towards so that they can be what society wants them to be, whether it's their parents, whether it's their friends, whether it's whatever the media is pushing. And it really hurts people. It really, really, really hurts people. And I refuse to let that happen to myself. So I've just distilled and distilled and distilled the things that I feel like I'm gifted at. And I'm almost humiliated, like literally humiliated and embarrassed at how few things I'm actually good at. But the flip side is I think I'm pretty good at those things. I think I'm pretty good at those things. And I want to get rid of all the things that I'm not naturally gifted at and stop trying to be somebody I'm not. And I think that if we had a world where people were more frank and matter of fact and honest with themselves and also with each other as friends and supporters, people would be a lot happier and actually do better work. When you're that story of that gentleman you saw, did it remind you of a younger version of yourself? Was there a time when you didn't surrender? Like where you felt stuck or fake or whatever? Yeah, I mean, all the time. I think all the time. I think I still do it. I think I do it to lesser and lesser degrees, but I think that that's part of what's so hard about school is school rewards a kind of person that's not me. It rewards someone who's a real completionist. It rewards somebody who's fairly diverse in their skills. It rewards someone who's a good rule follower. Like I remember my report card every year would say, you're like, this kid's not a good listener. And it was really hard for me because I just thought I was going to amount to a failure my whole childhood. And I really internalized that as a sense of my identity. And so I was constantly trying to contort myself to what the system right. needed me to be in this very procrustean way. And it that's a path to a lot of despair and unhappiness. And I could totally have seen myself going down that route had saved for a few really impactful conversations in my life and stuff like that. Yeah. You know, I struggle with that every day. I have, a, I have an 11 year old who's in middle school and like I, you know, having whatever you, the matrix, you took the red pill, you kind of see this whole other world that exists. I, yeah. it kind of scares me. Cause I'm like, I see what, you know, he's learning or, or how, you know, again, just your point, the report card, the listening, acting up, those type of things at times. 
And yeah, it kind of scares me because I'm like, you know, I try to coach them as best you can. Like, hey, there, those are some some of those things are actually strengths, right? Some of those things are totally. strengths, and I, I think sometimes they do get you kind of get put in. Hey, you got to stand in line and be this sort of way, which I don't think so is the best way to go about it. So your son's in sixth grade. Yeah. So when I was in sixth grade, I had like my very first moment in my life where I saw the potential of writing online. So your son's 11. So I'll back up to 10 years before. So I was two years old. So nine years before. And I was on an airplane with my parents and I was sitting, sitting in the middle seat and I was a very stubborn kid. And I was throwing like a temper tantrum and the plane hadn't even taken off yet. And the stewardess come up to us. They're like, you need to get off the airplane. Your son is, is, is causing too much too much of a ruckus so we end up gearing to get off the plane and my mom is trying to take the bags out you know put everything in the middle walkway it's really frustrating she's like picks me up sort of like puts me next to the window just sit there and we're just gonna deal with everything get away from us you know like let us pack all the bags i sit next to the window and i just stop crying instantly immediately and I just wanted to sit next to the window, but I couldn't express that. I was like a two-year-old kid. And so now fast forward to sixth grade, I really didn't like writing. And there was a project that we got to do in sixth grade. It was called the iSearch. And you were allowed to pick any question that you wanted to investigate. So I investigated how do airplanes fly? And I did this crazy research project. Remember, I was a really bad student, but I was, now I got to pick what I could do. I did this crazy research project on planes and aerodynamics. And it, I ended up being one of two kids in the class that got better than a perfect squirrel. I'll never forget, I got a 1,038 out of 1,000. And it was such a realization for me and everybody around me. And I still have my binder of the final project. I worked so hard on that. And what I think is interesting is that my stubbornness of not wanting to sit in the middle seat, my stubbornness of not wanting to work on things that I wasn't interested in was the price that nature was making me pay so that I could be really good at the things that I am interested in. Mm. And that when I do find something, I work really, really, really hard on those things. And I think that school is the system is trying to, in a very heavy-handed way, impose its wishes for how they want humans to be, rather than react to how humans actually are. And I think it creates a lot of misery in the lives of children who are extreme outliers like I was. Yeah, yeah that's... It's something that yeah, I definitely, I see often so I can relate of like, and I, and I was kind of like that when I was a kid too. Um, but you know, didn't really realize and I was too shy and quiet, I think as well. Um, but you know, it's interesting. It's, it's almost like, because I think the education system is so big, it can't transition as quick as it needs to, right? We're doing the same stuff you did back when my grandparents probably were in school and yeah. that doesn't add up well for today's world. Um, and I, and I don't know why that, 
they don't see it. I guess it's just because there's so much bureaucracy and so much like this is how it is. That you can't not, change it. Yeah, you yeah. can't change it because the problem is the teachers. So the 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 system is operated around the teachers union, and you don't even need teachers at this point uh, because the apps are getting so good. But the teachers need to keep their jobs, and it's any system where you have the consumer it'll be like a like a wheel where some people come in then new people leave some people come in new people leave and then there's another part of the system where the people are continually there that system will be optimized for the people who are continually there the the clear analogy is real estate the reason that people hate buying a house is that you buy a house once twice the real estate agents they are constantly selling houses and so the system is very much geared around their wants and their desires. And it's the same thing in school where the students are in a grade for one year, they come in, they leave. The thing that stays the same is the teachers. And so the desires of the teachers and the teachers union is extremely powerful. You can't change it. Like people who want the public school system to change at scale, it's just a foolish thing to want. Like you have to attack education from a totally orthogonal way mm. it's the only way to do it do you find and i guess what you're doing with like rite of passage and other stuff do you find there's a way to at least outside of the school system try to get to the the kids yeah, younger totally totally so there's a school in austin called alpha school and they basically figured out how to teach kids in a way where they can only stay in the school if they learn twice as fast as the average American kid in a public school, twice as fast in two hours of learning per day. So they learn twice as fast in a third of the time. And the thing is they don't have teachers. So I'm, I was talking to a high schooler there yesterday. She hasn't had a teacher since the fourth grade. And I have another friend who's there you're like, hey, you know, like, I don't that, you know, that works great for them, but I don't know that they can do well on a standard system. She just got a 1600 on the SAT. Like these kids are doing really well. Now it needs to be the right kind of kid for the school. The problem with education is that everybody is constantly looking for the one size fits all solution. Why are we doing that? We don't do that with other things. Right. Like, like, like imagine if you were like, oh, we need to design a shirt that fits every single person. You'd be like, what, why? Why can't we have smalls and mediums and larges and extra larges? Right. But that's kind of what we try to do with, with school. We don't really respond to the diversity of the mind. And I've seen this work at Alpha School in Austin and no teachers, they just learn through the apps. And then what they do is they take the open time during the day because they're doing way less academics and they learn life skills. Mm. So they'll learn how to, and, and they'll do it in really cool ways. So for example, they'll teach attention to detail with the, with the high schoolers, like the high school boys, where what they'll do is they have to follow like a 25 step process and the margin for error in any of the 25 steps is 10%. So you have to be inside of that. Yeah. And then at the end, you get to post on Instagram that you are have created something where you can breathe fire. So then you have this end of, you know, this, 
this light at the end of the tunnel that's super cool where they all get to post and have really cool videos of them like breathing fire. Then they have to follow all these steps and the kids are so excited. And then what they do is they change the difficulty level for different kids at different ages. So you can't graduate the second grade unless you can solve a Rubik's cube. And so then you can learn these life skills in really fun ways. And I'm like, for me, that's how education should yeah. That sounds pretty cool. What, wait, so like, are where there's no teachers? Are there like monitor? Are there's like some supervision? Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So they have they have guides. So they hire okay. guides, okay. and to the best of my knowledge, they have one question for the guides, which is they have to reach some bar, and the question is, every student. I think this is what they ask the parents. Every you had a teacher who changed your life and you loved working with them when you were a kid is your kid's guide that for your child and it's yes or no and then they i think that they rank them based off of that i'm not sure that that's true but it's something like that so they have guides and then they work with the kids so then the big thing is then motivational models so there was one kid who was really struggling. And I forget exactly what it was. I think that he wasn't doing well on the, they basically have leaderboards and he was towards the bottom and he was a big Denver Broncos fan. So one of the guys went to the kid, we'll call him Gary and said, Gary, like imagine if the Denver Broncos draft was starting, look at where you would be. Like, would you even be drafted? You want to be a first round pick, right? And by framing these projects through the Denver Broncos, he got super excited. Same thing happened to me as a kid. I did not like math at all. Uninteresting to me. Then when I was a senior in high school, I helped to co-write a 60-page manual on the physics and biomechanics of the golf swing. Mm. And there was a lot of math inside of that. Then there was the physics of how a golf ball gets hit and like how do launch rates and spin rates and curvature, how do they impact how far a golf ball flies, how fast it stops, all that jazz. And I got super into math. I got super into it. I haven't been that into math since then. I was never into that, never that into math before then. But it was like in that moment, once it was framed in terms of the physics of off-flight, the whole thing just came alive for me. And I think this is super, super common that we could just make these little tweaks in the framing of something. And all of a sudden something can go from feeling dead, dead and irrelevant to alive and super relevant. Yeah. Well, and one of the things you mentioned too, which I love is that they're, they're doing their work obviously, but then they're trying these life skills. They're trying these different projects where like, again, I see this with my son a lot is sometimes he doesn't like something. So we try something else. And then it's like, Oh, but if you never, you know, had four or five, maybe, ah, this wasn't that good. You might not have got to the other thing. And I think you totally. have to give kids that opportunity, you know? Totally. I think it's ridiculous that so many people try to find what they're gifted at, what they should be doing by almost sitting, like it's like the Rodin statue, the thinker. They're just sitting there. They're like, what should I do? What should I do? Yeah. What should I do? Whereas really, I think it's a process of elimination. It's a process of doing a lot of things and then having some way of reflecting and saying, okay, I just did this. I either liked it or I didn't like it, or I thought it was okay. So what 90% of that didn't I like? What 10% of that did I like? Now, what are the common characteristics of the 10% that I did like? 
And if you do that over and over and over again, you do that for 10 years, I know that sounds like a long time, but hey, you're out of college, you kind of figure out what it is that you want to do by 30, 35, you're swimming. Like you got 20 years of just being in the apex of your skills so that you don't become like that guy on Park Avenue who definitely never did that, who definitely never did that. Yeah. Well, and you, and you, I think it was Dave and John who said this was like, you learn a skill now for the, you don't know what the workforce is going to look like in 20 years. So why are we putting kids or even in college, like you're going to learn this specific skill. And it's like, things change. So why not actually learn the life lessons, kind of understand what you like a little, and then start adapting as you get older. I think that's the best approach. Yeah. One of my takes that people think is ridiculous and super wrong is I just think the liberal arts is so underrated. I think that there's really two separate conversations. There is the liberal arts, which is so useful. These are like the eternal truths of human nature and human civilization. And then there's liberal arts education, where which is absolute bogus and nonsense right now and mm -hmm. is just tainted by politics and so much nonsense right now. And the problem is when we talk about the liberal arts, most people haven't done any study of the liberal arts on their own. So they think that the liberal arts is all that political gender war, whatever nonsense. Yeah. And that's not what the liberal arts is. The liberal arts is let's go study the greatest stories, the greatest minds of all time. What are the ideas and motifs at the core of the human experience and what's going on. What can those reveal about who we are, why we're here? And I think that I just look at my friends and who the ones, who are the ones that I see as the wisest, the people who I think are the most tuned in to frequencies about life that other people aren't aren't seeing. They're the ones who have that proper liberal arts education. And I just think that liberal arts are super underrated. No one is talking about them huge edge because everyone's just trying to go into STEM and everyone's trying to just build some skill for the workforce. And look, it's absolutely crucial. Don't get me wrong, that you have a job after school where you're making enough money to pay your bills and cities are expensive. The world is expensive. I'm not denying that. But what I am, what I do believe strongly is that a true and proper non-politicized liberal arts education will forever be one of the best ways that you can spend your time. Yeah, that's a great point. I wanted to transition just to one or two more questions here. Um, is, and you kind of brought this up with like your wisest friends. And, and I look at some of the best people I surround myself with, how they give me energy. And this kind of goes back to starting. Sometimes you need some help. So I'm curious, who is Brent? Does that name ring a bell? <laughs> yeah, Brent Bichard is like one of my best buddies. Um, oh my goodness. I can't say enough good things about Brent. So I first met Brent in 2017 and I invited him on my podcast, very similar to what we're doing right now. And I guess he just took a liking to me and said, Hey, you should fly out to Missouri. We spent a few days together and I just wanted to learn from Brent about how I could make as much money as possible. Brent spoke to me a little bit about that. And then we just started talking about faith. And at the time I was just a raging atheist and we got to talking and he said, look, you can think whatever you want, 
But if you're not going to be a believer, if you're going to reject Christ, if you're going to reject any religion, like you should have a way better answer than the kinds of answers that you're giving right now. And it was the most gentle punch in the face, KO, knockout, you know, hold the belt thing that you've ever seen in your life. And for years after that, we, he just honestly showed me what it meant to give brotherly, brotherly love to somebody. I've never met somebody who is so attentive and caring and kind and gracious in terms of our interactions together. And a lot happened during this time, but I ended up becoming a believer in March of this year. And Brent gave the opening talk at my baptism. And he lives in Missouri. I live in Austin. I'll probably see him 10 times this year. I was with him last week in Missouri, oh. speaking at his Main Street conference. I just invited myself to Disneyland with his wife and his kids. <laughs> and I now invite myself to Disneyland with them every year. And it's just been a phenomenal friend. And what I've learned from Brent is that I used to think that if you were giving somebody feedback, you know, there's a lot of scientific studies where if you give somebody feedback, like what you should do is you should give like four pieces of positive feedback for every one piece of negative feedback. And like, we've run the linear regression and this is what we see. And I think that that model now is totally wrong. Totally wrong. I think that you can give as much positive or negative feedback to somebody as you want. It has nothing to do with that dimension of the ratio. It has to do with one dimension that is totally separate from what everybody discusses. And it is, do you feel loved by the person giving you feedback? That's it. And I define love as something very simple. There's nothing you can do to make me love you more. There's nothing you can do to make me love you less. I just love you. And if you feel that when somebody is giving you a piece of negative feedback, they can say whatever because you feel seen and cared for by them. But also it's just as important on the side of positive feedback because they're not trying to curry your favor. They're not trying to suck up to you. They're not saying that because you do this, I value you more or anything like that. It's just, this is something you do that I appreciate. This is something you did that I don't appreciate. And no matter what, I just love you. And I feel like Brent embodies that in just a brotherly way more than anyone I've met. And that's why it means so much to me. Mm. Do you encourage folks to look for accountability partners, like people that could, because I have, I, again, it's something I struggled with for a while until very recently, but like reaching out to people and asking for the feedback and yeah. and having that, that kind of, you know, whatever, we want to use analogy, the the going across the net back and forth with folks and, and having that. But is that something do you coach folks on, like get an accountability partner or a few to, to yeah. build a share? Yeah, that's not how I frame it. But I think that we're pointing at the same thing. I frame it as just absolute boys. Like, okay. <laughs> this is what my friend John calls them, absolute boys. And I think that that's a really good way to put it, which is just your ride or die friends. And I have a very small group of them. And we're blunt with each other. We're honest with each other. And I will just do anything for those people. 
And all of my closest friends, I spend multiple days with at a time, if I possibly can. I will travel, get on an airplane to do, to spend that time with them. And the condition is we're all going to root for each other. We're all going to call each other out when things aren't going right. We're going to support each other. And I'm just thinking off the top of my head for today. I mean, I'm having dinner with one today. I asked for a big, big intro for from another uh, today. And I got a call with another one right after this. And every week I hear from one of them, dude, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? No, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. And once again, it comes back to that love thing where we're tight. We're good friends. We see each other a lot. And the big thing is it's not like, hey, we see each other at barbecues. It's not like, oh, yeah, you know, we've had dinner sometimes. It's not any of that. Like another one I'm writing a piece with right now. It is like a small group of people who you'll do anything for it and you spend deep time together with multiple times per year. And if you have that, I think that the benefit of those friendships, you do not need a lot of them. A small number of those, it, to me, I mean, it is the stuff of life. And it's a thing that I hugely prioritize. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think having those folks, and, and to your point, they can say whatever they want. Doesn't mean you have to take everything, but it gets you thinking. It gets you going back into that. Hey, wait a minute. You know, I trust what they're saying. Let me think about this a little bit more. You know, it opens up that dialogue. So, I, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I want people to be able to say things to me that ninety nine percent of relationships, there's no way that you would say that to somebody else. Yeah, you know, it's like, and because we have that that friendship. They feel comfortable doing that. And I thank them. You know, often it's hard in the moment, but yeah. I've had friends who are calling, they'll face to me and be like, what are you doing? Cut it out, cut it out. And also this comes back to surrender to your nature. Having them look out for you so that they're holding you accountable for the things that you are actually made to be doing, the things that are actually aligned with your nature rather than the places that, oh, I wish that I could go be that person. I wish that I would be good at that. And they can identify places where you're out of alignment. That's really useful. That's really useful. But hey, if you're going to have friends like that, you got to be a good friend. And so it starts with you. Yeah, that's a great point. Dave, this is a lot of fun, man. Any uh, any final thoughts, things on your mind that you, you want to share? No, this is so much fun. This is so much fun. Thank you for asking great questions and bringing me on the show. Yeah, I appreciate that. Where can folks, where, where do you, are you normally on Twitter? Where do you play the watering hole? What social watering holes are you on? Yeah, I think Twitter is a good place to go. Just type in David Perel. But if you really want to dive into writing, I just launched a podcast of my own called How I Write. Phenomenal, There's by the way. Phenomenal. Really, it is Thank really you. good, man. Really good. Thanks, man. I'm... I'm really invested in that. And that's the kind of place where I do feel set the bullseye of what I should be doing with my life. And I did an interview with Mark Andreessen that might be interesting to folks. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, this is a lot of fun. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, sure thing. Hey everyone. And just one more quick thing before you head off on your day. 
If you're enjoying this podcast and are looking for other resources and tools to help you get started and move forward toward a happier and more fulfilling life, then I'd encourage you to head over to my website, brianondraco.com, and hit the subscribe button in the upper right corner. There you can find my newsletter and blog subscriptions, where I share insights and information around getting unstuck, perspective, mindset, relationships, habits, and much more. If you get a chance to sign up, I hope you enjoy. Thanks again for listening in and have a phenomenal day.